Good morning, everybody. if there's a little bit more light possible. Can you turn, turn me up a little bit? I don't necessarily love the spotlight, but I'm, the Bible's in um, shadow. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, um, we pray, Lord, that you might um, help us as you speak to us now. Please instruct us in how to live for you and uh, how to enjoy our relationship with you more as we relate to one another, especially in our most intimate, um, important relationships. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's uh, thank you. It's one thing to, uh, to build a house. It's quite another to maintain that house. It's uh, one thing to buy a house, but then uh, keeping it properly is another matter. Our house was built in 1970. Uh, so it's 53 years old. It's been extended a couple of times to suit various families that have lived in it. Uh, it's changed colour a couple of times, uh, but it's showing its age. So I notice little bits that leak and uh, little corners of wooden bits that are rotting and a bit grubby here and there and some flaking paint. And I commented to Jo um, a while ago that the house needs painting. She said, you're not going to try and do it yourself, are you? <laughs> I said, do you know how much it would cost to get a professional to come and paint this, this house? And I went out and I bought hundreds of dollars worth of paint, which are still sitting there in the shed three years later, <laughs> waiting for me to get around to it. It is one thing to buy a house, it's another thing to keep it in order. Well, we're preaching on some minor prophets uh, in the Old Testament at the moment, going down into the exile in Babylon and then out, up and out again into blessing. And part of the way up for the people of God uh, was returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple and re-establishing the worship of God. Uh, we heard in Haggai how the people turned to God and they built the temple as he told them to, and the significant thing was that they turned their hearts to God. So Haggai was a really good news story when they returned from the exile. But it's one thing to build a house, it's then another to keep it in order. So by, Mal by Malachi's time, about 100 years after the, the temple was rebuilt, the building is still there, but the hearts have strayed again. And we heard last week how their temple worship was more insulting than it was honouring to God. They brought their worst animals to sacrifice to God, not their best. Uh, and the priests were teaching or leading uh, the people in, God's, uh, in, in dodgy ways rather than in God's ways. And so the house was not being kept in order and God was not blessing them. And this week, in the passage we just read, the focus shifts from what's happening in God's house to what's happening in the people's houses. God says, your relationship with me is not just about what happens at church when you're here to worship. Even at home, behind the closed doors of your house, I should make a difference to you in the way that you operate there and your relationships there. So Malachi addresses this very personal issue of marriage and their personal morality during the week, because being one of God's people should make a very profound difference to how we conduct ourselves in all of our lives, including our love lives. Being a Christian really should set us apart in lots of ways. It's one thing to build a house, it's another thing to keep it in order. It's one thing to become a Christian, it's another thing to be faithful in all of your life. It's one thing to get married, it's another to reflect God in that marriage. So marriage is the big issue that we're looking at today, and that's uh, verses 10 to 16, as you see there in Malachi chapter 2. 
Begin, beginning with uh, the raising of the question of the people's dealings with each other generally, that which reflect their character. Are they faithful people? Uh, verse 10, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So he's emphasizing the unity of God's people there. There's one God, one people of God. So don't wreck it, he says, by being unfaithful to one another. Uh, I've, I've, I think I've said before that one thing that drives me crazy or has driven me crazy in the upbringing of my children is the issue of lying. You know, all parents confront Kids learn how to lie very early, and so all parents confront this issue of lying. You know, somebody takes the last biscuit in the jar, and everybody says, it wasn't me. So obviously somebody is lying, and that, that drives me crazy. So I would go on a rant about how lying is the worst, because if we can't trust each other as a family, then what have we got, and we really can't operate, etc., etc. It's like our family's been poisoned and carrying on, and the kids would just look at me, or they look at their shoes, and then one by one they would say, well, it wasn't me. Uh, families need to be able to trust each other. Unfaithfulness shatters fellowship. And so God's people here, God says, are we not one family with one father bound to him in one covenant? And being unfaithful to one another undermines the family and so profanes the covenant that holds it together. And Malachi identifies marriage as a key issue that was undermining God's people at the time and their unfaithfulness in that area and two issues in particular, both touchy issues because marriage is such a personal subject. First is the issue of whom we marry. Now, before we go into that, it should be said uh, that in the Old Testament, it was assumed that everybody would aim to marry, and it was a tragedy if someone couldn't marry and couldn't have kids for whatever reason. But in the New Testament, there actually is a prior question. Before you ask, who am I going to marry? There's, there's the prior question is, am I going to marry? Uh, if we marry is the prior question in the New Testament. Uh, it's not assumed that, like it was in the old, that everyone will marry. It's a valid option not to marry in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, they only were able to anticipate earthly blessing. But in the New Testament, there's the marriage to Christ when he returns and the resurrection when there'll be no earthly marriage, which we're looking forward to. Uh, as we know, Jesus didn't marry. He was celebrate celibate and uh, Paul was unmarried at least during his ministry as an apostle and he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's actually good from a ministry point of view a very practical point of view to be single uh, so you can focus on the Lord's work so we have a much bigger happily ever after in the New Testament and it becomes a question of if we marry rather than when or whom uh, but here, the first issue that Malachi addresses in the Old Covenant was that God's people were marrying the daughters of foreign gods, that is, worshippers of other religions they were marrying. Families were supposed to be in the covenant together. So you know how Joshua said, as for me and my family, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Uh, the covenant was a family thing in the Old Covenant. So to marry an idol worshipper and to bring her into your household was to contaminate God's covenant. Um, it undermined the people's relationship with God. It undermined their identity as God's people. And in verse 11, it says it was a detestable thing, literally an abomination. Uh, it desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves, verse 11. 
And verse 12, it says it's better to kick the man out of God's people than let him bring other religious religions into the covenant people of God. Now, this is not about race. It's not the fact that they were foreigners. Other races could convert to, to, to worshipping the Lord, like Ruth, who was a Moabite. It wasn't about race. It was about religion. And there was a long history of foolish men like King Solomon, you know, with all these 300 wives and 400 concubines, if I got that round the right way, uh, people from other religions he married and who led him away from God and ruined the nation. So there's a long history of this. For Christians, uh, the new covenant doesn't work in quite the same way as the old. We have Christ. His family is a spiritual family. But earthly families are still important in the new covenant. The danger of being led away from God is still there. And so Christians are urged to marry Christians in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, it says, A woman is bound to her, her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord, it says. So so-called uh, spiritual compatibility is important. You have to both be in the covenant, because if one is bound to Christ and the other is bound to something else, it's going to be difficult in marriage. This is not to say it's impossible to go on living in marriage to an unbeliever. Um, sometimes Christians find themselves married to non-Christians for whatever reason, and of course they will still love them. And 1 Corinthians 7 says, don't leave them. Um, they might be saved through you. Uh, you still have a covenant with them. But in that chapter, it also acknowledges the awkwardness of that situation and the difficulty and the fact that the unbeliever might decide to leave because you're a Christian and they're not. So in Malachi's time, whom they married was a matter of religious purity and keeping the covenant strong. In our time, the covenant depends on Christ and we may choose not to marry at all, but it's a matter of wisdom in the New Covenant also that Christians marry Christians. So that obviously has an implication for who we date, who, who we encourage our children and grandchildren to date, and all the rest of it. Okay, so that's the issue of whom we marry. The second issue is how we regard marriage. In verse 13, uh, the Jews wondered why God didn't bless them. Even though they brought him sacrifices and they wept and they wailed, what's going wrong? Why won't God respond? Malachi says, don't think you can just come to the temple with a couple of sacrifices and buy God's blessing. God is not just in the temple. He also sees what's going on in your homes as well. And that is an issue for you, he says. So Malachi points to God's presence with his people in their marriages. See verse 14. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So it seems that there was a bit of a feature in this society of being in and out of marriages. They took marriage lightly, they took divorce lightly. But Malachi says, God doesn't take your marriages lightly. He is holding you to your vows. He is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. In that culture, men had the power to divorce their wives. Wives didn't have the power to divorce their husbands, didn't go both ways. And a man might find himself quite discontent with his marriage and ask himself, do I still want to be married to this woman? It's not as exciting as it used to be. She's not, she doesn't look the same as she did when I married her or whatever it was. 
God says, I stand witness between you and the wife of your youth. You don't just get to switch out of your marriage. God holds his people to their covenants. And that is still true today. When we marry, we marry before God. God is a witness and his people need to reflect his faithfulness in how we regard our marriages. And to underline how important this is, Malachi then explains God's purpose for his people in marriage in verse 15. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. We are God's people and we exist for God's purpose. And in the Old Testament, God's purpose was to build a godly nation. And so biological growth was important in the Old Covenant. He wanted them to multiply as his people, literally, biologically. And the raising of children in God's ways, teaching them to follow God, was crucial. Um, in 430 BC in Jerusalem, Malachi's time, I, I don't think they had a school system like we do today. How were kids supposed to be raised in the ways of the Lord and in the ways of the world? In the household in which they were, they were, um, they were born. And so stable, faithful marriage, which kind of holds that household together, was needed for godly offspring. This is how God things, wanted things to work. And it's still true today that the best thing parents can do for their children is to foster a close, stable, loving relationship with their spouse. Uh, do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth because God wants godly offspring. Having kids is not as central to building God's people in the new covenant as it was in the old. It's spiritual children now. But biological families that operate as Christian families are still a means that God uses now to produce spiritual children. So Christian marriage is still important. Christian family is still important. Uh, what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. That is still a purpose for Christian marriage today. And the third factor that should influence how we regard marriage is God's protection of his people within marriage. Um, in the ancient culture, wives were even more vulnerable to being misused by their husbands than they are today. And God defends the vulnerable. So verse 16, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. That's the verse that used to be translated, God hates divorce. Um, but the modern translations like this one are, are probably the better ones. The man who hates, hates and divorces his wife. And these modern translations emphasize the cruelty of a man, especially in that culture, of carelessly divorcing his wife and leaving her nowhere, basically forcing her into prostitution. It's so cruel that it's described as an act of violence here in verse 16. Now, in our day and age, when somebody blows up their marriage and leaves for greener pastures, it might be described as uh, I'm being true to myself or I'm just following my desires or I, de I deserved better or whatever. But the selfishness can, be, can still be really cruel and God is on the side of the vulnerable. So the Bible still upholds an ideal of marriage that binds people together as God binds himself to his people. God stands witness to our covenants. God has a purpose 
for those covenants. God opposes those who abuse others within those covenants. So God is not just here at church when we come here together to sing and everything else. He's also in our homes when we go home and he cares about how we treat our spouses. He cares about how we approach those relationships. And twice Malachi says to those who are married here, be on your guard. That is, take heed to yourselves. That is, guard yourselves in your spirit, in your attitude to your marriage, in your attitude to your spouse. And part of that is asking the question of yourself, what is going on inside of me? Where is my heart? And part of it is being proactive in nurturing my relationship with my spouse and investing more of myself in her. Godly faithfulness is the aim. I guess we're all very conscious that biblical marriage is an ideal that uh, we don't see perfectly met in this world. Um, Perhaps we're very conscious that we have failed that ideal. Uh, perhaps we feel that that ideal has failed us. Some I know have been through marriage breakdown for whatever reason. Uh, some have come from broken families. Many are still in marriages with wounds and scars. And I can't imagine a marriage that doesn't have some wounds and scars at least. No one lives up to this as we should. And that hurts because marriage is such an important part of God's design for human flourishing and it should be a big deal for us and it is such an investment. So we really do feel our lack of perfection there and all our failures and faults where things have gone wrong. Churches should be places, or should not be places where everybody pretends to have a perfect marriage. Let's kind of spray on the smile when we drive into the car park and everything's fine because marriage is too important for that. Marriage is too important for us to, to pretend that everything's perfect because then, of course, when it's not, there's big trouble. We need to get help and we need to give each other help and encourage our marriage, married brothers and sisters to be faithful to their covenants. So even if you're not married, you're, you've got lots of people around you in church who are married and you can encourage them and you, you can have a good attitude to their marriages as well and see how important this is. The Bible acknowledges that things break down sometimes and divorce will occur. And there are certain circumstances in the New Testament uh, where God says, I don't hold a Christian to their marriage if they feel it can't go on in these circumstances. And we shouldn't stigmatize divorce. Uh, we need to come around those who've been through divorce and certainly not judge but we should value marriage as God does, whether it's our marriage or somebody else's marriage. And if we are married, we must be faithful. And that means not just not walking out. It also means not quiet quitting on the marriage. Um, getting married is one thing. Reflecting God's faithfulness in marriage is another. But I can't expect my relationship with God to feel right if my attitude to my marriage is wrong. So Malachi is saying to God's people here, God's there in your marriages. You need to watch yourselves and take those covenants very seriously as God does. And very quickly, their attitude to marriage reflected a broader attitude to morality, doing what's right versus doing what's wrong. Malachi tells them in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. In other words, God's sick of your carrying on. You might worry sometimes whether God's getting sick of your carrying on. 
Uh, maybe you feel like you bug him a little bit too much and he just sort of rolls his eyes. How do we weary God? Well, no amount of trusting God can weary him. No amount of praying to God in dependence on him can, can weary him. He's not going to get sick of that. What he does get sick of is distrust and unbelief and not taking him seriously and treating him like a joke, which is what these people were doing. So in this case, they were saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? In other words, we might as well do whatever we want because not, God's not going to do anything about it anyway. That was their attitude. Now, we probably wouldn't be crass enough to say that out loud. Um, however, perhaps it's still inside of us. There's a little thing that says, well, what does it matter whether I try to do the right thing or not? It doesn't seem to make any difference anyway. God never seems to do anything about it. Well, uh, God will do something about it. God promises to do three things in uh, these verses, all of which come together in Jesus. Uh, the first is, he says, the Lord will come, verse 1. A messenger will come to prepare the way, that's John the Baptist. Suddenly the Lord will come to his temple, that's Jesus in Jerusalem. The messenger of the covenant, that's Jesus as he teaches. So the Lord will come and he has come in Christ. Secondly, worship will be refined, verses 2 and following. He will refine and purify the religious system so that there'd be acceptable offerings to God. And of course, Jesus has done that. He's offered himself to God. He has refined the system. We now have perfect access to God and we bring ourselves as uh, living sacrifices to him. So that has happened as well. And thirdly, the people will be judged. Verse 5, God says, I will come and I will put you on trial. Uh, and God wouldn't just be the judge. He would also be the witness. He says, I will testify. So God's saying, I've seen the way you've been living. I've seen what you do in your bedrooms. I've seen what you do in your businesses. I've seen the lies that you've told. I've seen the way that you've taken advantage of others. I've seen the way that you've walked past the needy. It all boils down to the fact that you do not fear me. I've seen it all and I will put you on trial and I will be the witness, says God. And of course, Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm risen from the dead. I'm coming back to judge everybody. So why should we care about what God sees and what God thinks? Is he going to do something about it? Jesus coming shows that he has already started to do something about it and he will finish the job when he comes again. So, I mean, you know what it's like. It's, it's actually quite tiring to care about doing the right thing all the time. To always ask the question, you know, am I doing the right thing? Why don't I just do whatever I feel like doing? That's much easier. It's, it's exhausting to, to try to do the right thing all the time because there's always part of us that wants to do the wrong thing or the selfish thing. That's how God's people had become in Malachi's time and Malachi was not letting them get away with it. Um, they were asking, why isn't this working? Why isn't God blessing us? Why isn't God accepting our sacrifices? Why don't we feel closer to God? Why aren't we more at home with God in his house? And Malachi says, well, because you're pretending God doesn't exist when you go home to your houses. You think God's not there in your houses and in your marriages and in your business dealings and everything else. Um, they thought God doesn't care what they get up to when they walk out of church, but he does. So the point is, it doesn't matter how good we are at doing church, we will never really feel at home with God if we don't let God rule in our homes, in our marriages, our families, our morality in the day-to-day. -day. So we should care about doing what's right 
and we should put the effort into these areas of our lives, and most especially in response to this passage uh, in the area of marriage. So let me pray that God uh, does work in us and help us to follow him truly. There's a prayer on the bottom of the outline which I'll, I'll lead us in. Heavenly Father, I am sorry that while you are always faithful, I am not always faithful. In my folly, I look for blessing outside your covenant. In my selfishness, I break faith with others. Thank you for the perfect faithfulness of Jesus in serving you and saving me. Please help me to be faithful to you and to others who rely on me. Grant me greater integrity in my relationships at home and my personal morality as I follow Christ. In his name, amen.